All right, open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. We're going to be, we're actually going to cover the whole chapter, uh, verses 1 through 23. All right, Proverbs 5, let's read this together. If you don't have a Bible, down the center column of chairs, there's a Bible there. Grab it, uh, open it up to the center. You're going to be somewhere around the Proverbs or Psalms. Uh, we're going to read these words out loud together and, uh, and then dive into Proverbs 5. Let's read together. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my heart to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for uh, a, a new day. Thank you for new doses of grace and mercy towards us. God, we thank you that you love us despite us, and that you do that through your Son by the Spirit. Lord, we pray that, uh, that you'd open our eyes to what you have for us to say, God, that you'd open our ears, uh, that we might hear you speaking loudly to us through this infallible book of, uh, of knowledge that we call the Bible. And God, would you open our hearts to not just receive, but to inevitably be transformed by the goodness of Jesus. And we pray that in, in his name. And everyone said, amen, amen. So, one of the benefits of preaching through books of the Bible or sections of books of the Bible is every once in a while, um, preachers are forced to preach on topics that they wouldn't ordinarily choose. And so today is one of those days, and sex is one of those topics. Um, this is going to be PG. So, I mean, for you young people in the room, don't, don't worry about it. Neil's going to be all right, Valerie. <laughs> um, Here's the thing. Uh, most Christians are uncomfortable talking about sex, especially in church. Um, but if you think about it, outside the church, um, think about all the different 
things that you come across on a daily basis. Uh, there, I mean, there's no, there's no topic in, in secular society that's talked about, tweeted about, Facebook posted about, Instagrammed, Googled about more than, more than sex, which is really why the church should be talking about it. Um, and so as we're in a series in Proverbs, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, and our goal is to, to get wisdom. And so we're trying to get wisdom uh, in Proverbs 5 into this, this specific area of our lives. And it would be impossible for us to get through Proverbs without stumbling across uh, the topic of sexual fidelity, but also the things that could go wrong in our lives in regards to, to sex. Uh, there's a brief mention of it in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. There's a huge chunk here, obviously, in chapter 5. There's another big chunk in chapter 6, another big chunk in, in chapter 7. Um, and so God really wants us to address this issue um, and, uh, you know, as it affects our lives. You can't talk wisely about about life without stumbling across the, the issue of, of sex in our lives. Um, Proverbs doesn't shy away from this issue, and really the Bible doesn't either. The Bible isn't squeamish about talking about, about sex. Um, and so that makes sense for us when we think about how God started everything in, in the first place. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in Genesis 1.27, it says that God created Man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we're created in the image of God. Very next verse, verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, uh, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that lives and moves on the earth. And so here's, the, here's what God does. God created humanity in his image, and he gave us the, this biological um, ability, a desire really, to create as well um, you know, little mini-me's in our own image. God wants, he, uh, he gave us a wherewithal where we would want to procreate. Um, and what God wants is, you know, not just people filling the earth, God wants people who love and serve him to have little people who grow up to love and serve him in perpetuity. So the whole earth will be filled with people who know and love and are serving God, having more people that know and love and serve God. It, the creation mandate really is um, a part of our human identity. Really, even after Adam and Eve do what God says not to do, after the fall, it's a part of who we are. And so the creation mandate is a biological calling for us. We're supposed to have these desires, and we're supposed to, you know, it's supposed to become the manifestation of people on the earth. Think about this. God paraded all these animals in front of Adam. He got to name them, and then God says these words, negative comments. He's like, it's not good that Adam's alone. So he puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, got some dust, made Eve, and then brought her to him. And that was you know, symbolic of the pinnacle of creation being complete, but not just complete, being satisfied. And so sex within marriage is, is, uh, is, is the completion and, the, and the, the satisfaction of the desires, the natural desires that God has given us in our lives. Um, Genesis 2.24, uh, uh, 
a scripture verse that many of you have heard. You probably heard it if you're married at your wedding. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the first wedding. God is covenanting man to the woman and both of them to himself. In this very next verse, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. That's the, the, the marital covenant. That's unity in marriage. But it's also like naked bliss, right? I mean, they were they didn't have any clothes on for a long time. We don't know if it was like a couple days or a few months. It might have been a lot of years. They were just naked, hanging out, having fun. That verse is important because... That verse is important because it speaks to, I said I was going to keep this PG, didn't I? That verse is important because it doesn't just talk about sexual union. It talks about uh, nakedness together. This is indicative of the consummation of their union, but it's also indicative of transparency and vulnerability. I mean, that's what God wants for you in, in your relationship, particularly your marriage relationship. He wants you to be um, vulnerable. He wants you to... Uh, to be fulfilled and satisfied, but he wants you to be unified. Marriage is a covenant. Later in the New Testament, through the the voice of the Apostle Paul, we're told that marriage is this profound mystery, but uh, here's the thing. It reflects who God is and the covenant that he has started with you, and he's mirroring that same thing with you and your marriage. And so here's what Adam was called to do in the garden. He was called to be a prophet, a priest, and a king, loving and serving his wife, um, and leading her. Yet he failed. At some point, uh, Adam and Eve do the very thing God says for them not to do. And this Godward direction they were supposed to go in is, is curtailed, and uh, bad stuff kinds of happen, kind of happens. And one of the very first things that we see go wrong in the world, but particularly with this couple, is immediately when sin entered the world, there's shame. What did Adam and Eve do? Uh, as soon as they sinned against God, they went and hid. They knew that they were naked. Okay, there's this, there's this automatic shame that comes when sin enters the world. They cover up. This represents their brokenness, a broken covenant with themselves, a broken covenant with God. Genesis 3 happens, and this curse comes upon humanity, but this curse also affects all of creation. And it's an automatic tension, a tension that we see played out in Proverbs. And more importantly, I mean, we see this in our own lives, don't we? Husbands and wives, we see this tension that started thousands of years ago in the, in the marriage of the first people on the earth that's, uh, that really is manifested in our own marriages. And so whereas mankind was meant, to, meant and created to be gregarious, to work for partnerships, uh, the symbol of which was our our free, vulnerable sexual intimacy, falling into sin brings brokenness in this crucial area of our lives. And so two things happen uh, as a result of the fall uh, that manifest in sex. Sex can either be this profoundly life-giving thing or it can be uh, just a very destructive force in our lives. And that brings us to our text. So um, we're continuing with the, the words of Solomon to his kids, and, and Proverbs 5 is meant to be a continuation of these lectures that he's given his boys. It's a father's pursuit to, uh, to, to I mean, wake his boys up. They're probably a little older right now. Some, some scholars even think that his boys might be married. And so this conversation between Solomon and his, um, and his children has not stopped. And so, that, I mean, that's a, a good word for us parents. 
never stop talking to your kids. I mean, I mean, you, that's that's your role. Um, definitely up to the point where they get married. But sometimes even after they get married, I mean, our, our, our kids deserve to hear our voice. Why? Because we've lived life. We've had some successes, but we've had some failures that, that they can glean from, hopefully keeping them from making those same types of failures. And this is what Solomon is telling his boys. He's like, don't wait for wisdom in regards to sexual ethics to come and find you. You need to go seek it. You need to search for it hard. Otherwise, you're going to fall prey to all those things that are happening right here in this chapter. Um, so all that to say, um, why, I mean, why, we, why should we talk about sex in church? Well, because the Bible talks about it. Um, we should talk about it because um, it's a part of our lives. But, but here's the real reason, not, not that the other two weren't real. We don't always handle this very well. I mean, it's just one of those areas that can get us tripped up. Um, for many of us, sex, sexual relationship, even in marriage, is a struggle. And as we're going to see in this, in this chapter, the consequences are huge for us, depending on how we handle this particular issue. Uh, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard Knowledge. Uh, we're used to hearing these words. Again, this is Solomon in a very familial, intimate, grace-filled talk to his sons. This is his eighth lecture. He's given these, you know, these small, just like, you know, hand on the shoulder, um, you know, father to son kind of talks to his boys to teach them about life. If you're in the female persuasion here in the room, this doesn't mean he's not talking to you, though. All right. What we're talking about here is not just sexual fidelity, but more so we're talking about um, the things that can go wrong, sexual temptation. And it will be wrong. I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, no one can escape. No one that's a human being in this world escapes temptation. None of us uh, escape sexual temptation uh, as well. And so this is Solomon. He's the sage. He's the instructor. And he's calling his sons to hear what he has to say. He's saying, he's saying you know, you got you to path to choose. You can choose between wisdom or you can choose between uh, folly. And he's saying, I have some things for you to, uh, to, to learn so that you would learn, so you would learn to live wisely in this particular area. You can live wisely or you can go on your own and do as you please. But if you do that, you're going to get in trouble. Verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman are uh, drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in, the, but in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her, path, her steps follow the, uh, the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Uh, so, this is the introduction to the, the main topic of, of, the, of the text, and um, it's right there in verse 3, the lips of a forbidden woman. Again, Solomon's not just talking to, you know, he's particularly in context talking to his sons, but he's talking uh, mostly about sexual temptation. So this applies really to all of us, and he's saying something just outright uh, that we need to acknowledge up front. Sexual temptation looks very good at the outset. He says, the lips of a forbidden, the word is strange woman, drips honey. Two things are going on here. He's, he's doing something called a, a lay motif. It's a German word, which basically means he's bringing up a recurrent theme. Uh, if you would just scan the text, 
um, he's giving us a bunch of images or words that all convey this, the same meaning. Just think about how many times he uses the word lips. Uh, verse 2, and your lips may guard knowledge. Verse 3, the lips of a forbidden woman. Verse 7, um, listen to me, do not, de- do not depart from the words of my mouth. Uh, you know, how, do you, how does your words make sounds out of your mouth? Your lips help it do that. Also, uh, verses 11 and 12, he talks about... Um, about you know the, the lips and and uh, things coming out of our mouth. Here's what he's saying: our words and our voice test can testify against us. In other words, this is a war of words. We have the the opportunity to decide who we're going to listen to. Are we going to listen to the smooth words of of, of a woman that is? Um, trying to bring us down in a sexual way, or are we going to listen to the words of a sage, of, 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 a, of wisdom? Here's the second thing. Um, he mentions this, uh, this word honey. I'm not a big honey eater. Any of y'all eat honey? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, Devin's like, yeah, I eat honey. All right, so all you non-sugar eaters. I mean, think about it. I mean, um, in this day, you know, ancient Near East, honey was the sweetest substance that they knew, okay? natural, it has, you know, it's all this, all you healthy eating kind of people. Honey's got all the things it's supposed to have and doesn't have any of the things it's not supposed to have, right? He's, he's giving us a picture, though. He's like, you know how honey looks, you know, it looks like, man, I want some honey. I'm going to just stick my hand in and put it on my tongue and, and get some. He's like, sexual temptation is the same way. It's like something that's delectable, delightful, delicious. Hmm. <laughs> He's saying sexual temptation is sweet and it's smooth. It looks good. It promises a lot up front. All you got to do is just taste it. It's fun to flirt. It's enjoyable to check somebody out. I'm, this is the obviously the current uh, manifestation of this. You know, it's, it's fun to read certain kind of novels, to just watch stuff, to look at pictures. It's fun to engage in sexual activity outside marriage. Do y'all, I mean... Don't tell me if you've done it, but I mean, <laughs> that's the ramification of what he's saying. But, but here's, here's what he also says. He says there's a cost. Verse 4, he says, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Wormwood was a, a bitter root. Uh, uh, if you use vermouth, vermouth to cook with, it's, uh, you know, if you just taste a little bit of vermouth, it's kind of nasty, right? But if you put it in food, like let it stew with some tomatoes and stuff like that, I think that's what my wife does with it. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Delectable. And so uh, wormwood would be like tasting something that's sweet at first, but then it turns bitter. I mean, yeah, it, it has this great taste and great aroma, but then, I mean, as it gets in your body, it's like, oh, I need to throw this thing up. And just spit it out. It's just nasty. He gives us another picture. He says, it's as sharp as a double-edged sword. I mean, what's a sword do? It cuts. And if you get cut, what happens? I mean, it hurts, right? It hurts a little. It could perhaps cut a lot. And so he's giving us a picture, a common picture that we see throughout Proverbs. And it's this. Life, life is usually two paths. Okay, you have the the, the path of sexual temptation, which is going to lead you down the wrong way and eventually lead to death. And then you have the other path. You know, most of Proverbs talks about righteousness. Specifically here is talking about the path of fidelity in the confines of marriage and fidelity in your life. If you're not married yet, waiting for God to bring you the mate that he intends 
for you. And, and here's the lie that culture tells us. And the lie goes like this. It says illicit sex is fun and it's fulfilling. We hear that on TV. We hear it in commercials. We see it in magazines. We see it in social media. And here's the thing that makes this lie so dangerous. It's almost true. I mean, isn't it? Those that would indulge in this way, I mean, they just say this. It's, it's indeed fun and fulfilling at first. It promises a lot. It's inviting and it's exciting. But here's the truth behind a lie. Illicit sex promises way more than it's going to actually deliver you. At, so, at some point, it's going to ruin your life. It's going to, you're going to like, all the things that mean something to you are going to get sucked away if you take it that far. And it's going to lead to your death, perhaps your physical death, but more importantly, your, your spiritual death. In fact, Proverbs um, 9 through 5, 9 through 14 gives us the consequences of illicit sex. Let's read that part. Verse 9, lest, uh, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Um, what, what's, what's Solomon saying? He's like, if you give in to you know, sexual temptation, then very likely you could lose everything. Your power, years, wealth. Um, the fruit of all your hard-earned labor. Uh, the picture that he's giving us is, is really one that's probably, I mean, really real for most of us. We probably know someone that's fallen to uh, sexual temptation, has gotten involved in some illicit sex, and their life has been unraveled as a result of it. And perhaps if you don't know anyone outside of you, it might be your life that's I mean, that, that's, that's been done to. But here's the truth um, that we need to think about. I mean, Solomon says, even if you escape your life, you might not escape your hell. I mean, he gives some very vivid pictures here. Verse 11, at the end of your life, you groan and your flesh and body are consumed. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about a sexually transmitted disease. He's talking about something that will affect you to the point that you would groan because your body is is feeling the manifestation of it. And then he goes in verse 14 and says that you may escape your life, but you may not escape, um, you may not escape your reputation. Look at verse 14. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation, which basically says, there, I mean, people are going to find out. And you might be one that doesn't care about your reputation, but most of us do. We care about what other people think of us. There are people Many people who've lost everything because they just got, you know, they put their toe in to the, you know, the, the waters of sexual temptation and then they put their foot in and then they put their whole leg in and they put their, you know, it, it, and they never took it out. They lost, they could lose everything, job, money, family, reputation. And so the Bible, of course, warns us against that. You could put it like this. When you take what is not yours, you end up losing what is yours. And the, the end result is that you live. I mean, it doesn't just go away. You live with uh, a life of regret. There's a lot at stake here. That's why this is so important. Uh, but here's the bad news. For most of us, it's not enough just to know this. You know, it's, that's, that's, 
That's true with most sins. It's not just enough for us to know it. There's a lot of people who know what's at stake in regards to sexual immorality and illicit sex, but who still take the risk despite knowing all the warnings. Um, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, Smoking Central, Liggett and Myers. Um, they, you know, it was like the center of the tobacco world. And I'm not against smoking. I grew up with smoking parents and a smoking grandma um, who, thank God, stopped smoking because the doctors told them to. But um, I mean, have y'all? I'm not. Be, it's not. A, it's not a sin to smoke. It's just. A, it's just bad for your health, right? Okay. So y'all, religious, religious, legalistic people. It's not sinful. The Bible doesn't have a chapter and verse like, thou shalt not smoke, okay? Okay, so if you like cigars and pipes every once in a while, and I mean, and if you got to like light up and smoke some cigarettes, do it to the glory of God, right? <laughs> but, but have you checked out the warning on the cigarette package? I said, check it out. My, my mom used to have, I, mean, I was a little kid, under 10. I used to go to the neighborhood store and buy her a carton of cigarettes, Territons, 50 cents. I mean, those jokers cost like $4 a pack now. But have you read the warning label? I mean, it just like spells out all the things that's going to happen on the inside of your body as you, as you, you know, just get a hold of that nicotine and, and it starts like getting a hold of you. And and then there's anti-smoking campaign on TV that, that show us in really vivid form the people who are affected by years and years of smoking and are so addicted to it that they can't stop, no voice box, just like lungs all ate up. I mean, it just it, it really it should move you if you I mean, y'all have, y'all have seen these commercials, right? I mean, that's some rough stuff. But here's the thing: these people they can't shake it. They can't shake it because the nicotine has gotten them. Uh, you know, they're addicted to it of a sorts. But I think more than that, they smoke even knowing the damage it'll do because they just want to. And I think the same thing applies to many of us today, especially in this area of, of illicit sex. We, we know where it leads to. We know where it's, uh, it, it perhaps is alluring us to go. It could lead us down the wrong path, but if we aren't careful, it will definitely do that, and we aren't going to be able to snatch ourselves back. And so here's what Solomon does. He gives us two strategies, two strategies for dealing in this area in regards to um, where illicit sex could lead us. The first strategy is defensive. He tells us what to do to protect ourselves. Verse 7, let's back up. Verse 7 and 8. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Solomon is, I mean, he's talking to his sons. Look, and now, oh sons, this is grace filled. I mean, he doesn't have a paddle out trying to spank them. He's like saying, hey, I, I, I love you. And I'm saying these words to you as harsh as they may sound because of my great love for you. I want you to get this right because perhaps I've gotten it wrong. And he just basically tells them to listen. So here's, here's what I'm telling you as your pastor. I mean, listen, do, do you know what's sexually tempting for you? Don't, all right, don't raise your hand, don't yell out loud. If you don't know, you need to know. That, I mean, that's the first line of defense, knowing what's sexually tempting for you. Uh, here's, here's the human tendency. Sometimes we just scoot up against, like, the temptation as close as we can get. Like, uh, have y'all seen the, the movie The Secret Life of Pets? 
I don't want to spoil. It's a great movie. It's it's fun. We we saw it a couple few weeks ago. Um, it's a movie about what your pets do after you leave them at home by themselves, and uh, you know it's got all kind of animals that that are represented there: hamster, you know, cat. So this this beginning scene, one of this this fat cat. All right, all she does is like lay down and eat, and when her owner leaves, she goes and opens up the refrigerator. I mean. Hopefully your cat's not opening up your refrigerator. She opens up and she sees this delectable chicken. It's like cooked, well done, just like beautiful sitting there. She opens the refrigerator, closes it. A couple seconds later, opens the refrigerator, closes it. A couple seconds later, opens the refrigerator, closes it. And then the next scene, she's like belly up. And they show the picture of the chicken, like nothing but bones. And then she opens the refrigerator again. Ah, there's a cake. She opens the refrigerator, closes it. It didn't take her long that time. Next scene, that cake is gone. It's, and then she, they, show, they show the fat cat. She's in a food coma. <laughs> I mean, I, I really think that's what happens. I mean, we just brush up alongside temptation, sticking our toe in and then our whole foot and our leg. And before we know it, our whole body is in and it's too late to get ourselves out. So what does Solomon tell us? He tells us in verse 8, don't even go near what tempts you. He says, change your path, stupid. He's like, change your path. Don't go near the temptation. Just like, like waving you off. Don't go anywhere near it. Stay far, far away. And, and here's, here's what this means for us. We need to take intentional, deliberate, evasive action so that we can avoid sexual temptation as much as humanly possible. I mean, that's what he's telling us that we need to do. Why? Because it's, it's costly. It, it could end up being costly to your life, to your, uh, you know, to every part of your life. But that's really what we need to be able to avoid the consequences from falling in this area. Um, so, I mean, let me ask you, do you know how you're tempted? If you don't know how you're tempted, you should really ponder that, like starting today, because t- sexual temptation is all around you. It could be a friendship with somebody, and you know the emotional bonds are getting way too close, and the relationship's in danger of becoming an emotional or even a physical affair. It could be the novels that you're reading. Say, so like, you like, I just like some romance novels. And those things are just heating you up. And, I mean, heating you up to a point that as, at some point you're going to, like want to act out on the passion that you're being aroused by. It could be somebody that you see regularly that you have thoughts about. Um, I mean, what should you do? I mean, find another door to go through. Don't walk by that door. For a lot of us, um, the, our main temptation is the media. I mean, everywhere we go, magazines. I mean, you go to them, and, you know, they put like plastic covers on magazines now, but they, I mean, you can't. It doesn't mean you can't see the naked body like beyond the plastic, right? Um, so there's, there's magazines, there's movies, the internet. Um, you know, counselors say that more Christians are addicted to pornography because of the prevalence of internet right there on our smartphones now. Um, it's just right there for us. And, you know, th- there's an endless supply. Um, you need to identify whatever it is that's tempting you. I would, I would say every person in here from 15 on up needs to know how they are tempted, how they're specifically tempted 
sexually. And there's no shame in knowing how you're tempted because to be tempted is not a sin. It's what you do with the temptation. But there's another step. We have to take an additional step of taking evasive action. And taking evasive action could be um, something as radical as changing your job if your job or someone at your job is the sexual temptation that you are um, around every day. It could be breaking up a friendship, canceling your internet connection if need be. It's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I can't do that. You want your life? It could be as small as not reading magazines, being accountable to your wife, fellas, moving the computer from, uh, from wherever it is in private to a common area in your house, installing an internet filter on both your computer and your smartphone. Some of us need to do all those. I'm not trying to be legalistic and you know, put a religion on you, but what I am suggesting is uh, you know, heart change happens by the gospel through the Spirit um, you know, in the very inside of us. And I'm not trying, I'm trying to make you behave in a certain way, but definitely, if you have a problem here in the, in the sexual area, you need some boundaries. And you might even need some people to help you with those boundaries. That's the first strategy. It's defensive. The second strategy is more proactive. Solomon says the best defense against failing sexually is a vital relationship and a proper sexual relationship with your spouse if you're married. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let, your, uh, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Uh, these words are highly erotic. They're written in, you know, the language of, you know, the, the ancient Near East. This is between 600 and 900 B.C. Before, I mean, lots of years before Jesus even walked the earth. And so uh, they're couched in, you know, the, the, the language of that day. But Solomon is being very specific about some very specific sexual stuff. And he's like, have fun with your wife. Have fun with your spouse. And I realize everybody here isn't isn't married, but here's talking to his sons in regards to to them enjoying their sex lives with their spouses. He says the best defense against uh, illicit sex against an adulteress is a good offense. And these verses tell us to find satisfaction and joy in the sexual part of our marriage. Um, This is sort of changing a little bit, but for the most part, Christians have always been known as like anti-sex, no fun, stuck-up kinds of people. I mean, that, that's the label that we get. And Solomon, it is sad. And Solomon is encouraging us, loosen up a little bit. Have some fun. Go have some kids. You know how? He's like, he's like be clear about God's good purposes for sex. A couple of verses. Verse 14, he says, not verse 14, uh, Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. That's kind of explicit. That's like that would be in a romance novel, like a rated <laughs> R romance novel. The 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 keyword, your own, he's, he's like, what's the proper relationship to express yourself sexually when you got a spouse, right? And and then he's he's giving us this picture of water, drinking water. Um 
Water is necessary for life. And so he's acknowledging that God is giving us desires that I wouldn't say are necessary for you to fulfill, but they are desires that he gave you so that you would be satisfied. Okay. Um, And then in verse 18, he says, let your fountain be blessed. I I can't tell you what the fountain is. Not in public. And rejoice. (laughs) He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Uh, Scholars are are confused as to the, the animal images related to, you know, the female persuasion. We don't know what body parts are what. Uh, but here, I mean, be blessed. He says there's a blessing. There's, a, there's this joy that comes when you're enjoying um, sex life with your spouse. All right. So he gives you freedom to do that. Um, you know, here's how many of us live with this. Um, a lot of us let the enemy beat us down. I mean, that's that's really the, the gist of it. Um, Satan's trick in this area is to fill us with so much shame that we feel completely isolated, defeated and embarrassed, especially if I mean, you didn't grow up as a Christian. If you if you you know, you got into um, sex before you before you got married, if you were uh, if you had things that happened to you as a young person for which I mean, you still remember it and you have great shame for it. Now, Satan beats us down and he knows he knows this about us. That sin thrives in the dark. It does. It thrives when we're uh, experiencing a lot of shame and secrecy. And so here's the Bible solution for our shame and for the secret lives that we we often live. It's to bring it into the light. I mean, that's what God, Peter says that in 1 Peter 2. He's like, we're supposed to, uh, that that we're the, the people of God, the a chosen priesthood that we would show forth the praises of him who's brought us out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And so he wants us to have light and experience that light and his grace in this area. Paul has some great words for us in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul's talking about the the, the sins that can get in the way of a fulfilled life. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10, he says... Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, He's naming off a lot of serious sins, not just the ones that are sexual, but a lot of, I mean, a lot of stuff that we sometimes do, and he's saying this, guess what, folks? You will not inherit the kingdom of God if you do these things, and you do them habitually. He's talking about getting to heaven, being with God eternally in heaven forever. But then he says these beautiful words, verse 11, and such were some of you. I mean, those are good words. That's, that's good news for us. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I mean, the good news is about what God has done for us in Jesus. His perfect life lived on the earth because we couldn't. Um, His death on the cross, dying a death that we deserve in our place for our sin. And um, the Spirit of God bringing him back to life because, because God received his sacrifice and Jesus' resurrected life precedes our own. And, and here's the beauty of this. When 
God takes us as fallen sexual beings and he washes us. It's not just like he takes some soap and washes our hands off because our hands are dirty. That's not what he does. He, he gives us a picture of the Old Testament. It's a picture of a Levitical priest getting a perfect, a perfect animal, spotless, and taking that animal, slaughtering it, taking its blood and sprinkling it on the altar and it's the blood that cleans you. And so what's this a picture of? This is a picture of Jesus atoning for your sin by his death on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. He not only washes you with his blood, he sanctifies you. That's make, he makes you holy. He makes it so that all your sins are washed away by his blood. And then he puts you in a white garment so that though you've sinned, you're clean in God's sight. And he justifies you, meaning you it's just as if you never sinned. So let me ask you, I mean, is any of, are any of you here struggling sexually? Are you caught up in an illicit sexual relationship right now that you shouldn't be? Have you fallen in this area and you're having difficulty um, getting over the shame, getting over the secrecy of it, and just want God to come and clean you? This is beautiful passage in the New Testament, John 8, where... Um, the religious leaders are trying to trip this woman up. And uh, they catch her in the act of adultery, actually pull her out from her bed while she's in the act of committed uh, illicit sex and pull her out in the streets and they start questioning Jesus. Hey, the law says we're supposed to stone this woman to death for sexual adultery. And uh, Jesus bends down on the ground, starts writing some stuff, and he basically says, hey, any of you that are without sin, cast a stone. And these religious people just all walk away. And there's no bone but Jesus and this woman left. And, and then he tells her, uh, who's here to condemn you? She says, no one. She only says two words, no one. And then he says, go and sin no more. Your sins have been forgiven. Those are, those are beautiful words. You know, here in Northern Virginia, um, we're not like the Bible Belt. <laughs> Uh, we don't, you know, we don't uh, dismiss our sin to the point that we don't think we don't sin. I mean, we know we sin. But here in Northern Virginia, you know, in the Beltway, we are either too prideful or too busy to do anything about our sin. We sin and we sin and we sin, especially, you know, this area too. And we just let it pile up on top of each other uh, because of pride or because we're just too busy. We're type A folks that don't give God the credit that he needs to deal with us in our lives. And so, you know, in the old church, you do an altar call when, when you talk about stuff like this. We're not going to do an altar call. All right. I don't need you to raise your hand confessing that you sin sexually. That would not be the right thing. It's not me. That's not my style. But I am going to ask you to take some decisive action today. I'm, ask, I'm going to ask you to be reflective about your sexual history and where you stand with God in regards to it. I'm going to ask you to be reflective about um, your life right now and where you are sexually, uh, both with or without your spouse. And this is what God is is doing for us. He's inviting us to come to his throne of grace. I mean, God's a great God. He's a good God. He knows our struggle. He knows that we're not going to get this right in this life. And he's especially... um, graceful to those who have been abused and have just, you know, just had a hard time um, uh, picking life back up and and getting on the right track sexually when a previous experience 
perhaps our fault or maybe even not our fault, sexual abuse or, or things like that have just sort of marked us and we can't get our traction. So where are you? The Lord himself wants to wash you. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to justify you. And he's really exhorting you today to come and receive his grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the picture of, uh, of grace that you give us in this particular area. Um, Lord, we're people that need it. Uh, we're like the woman who, um, who was caught doing something wrong. And for some people here, it might not be exact sexual sin, but all of us have an area of our lives that we have um, been illicit. We've done something that we should not have done. And so, God, would you come and would you apply the grace that only you can? Would you forgive us? Would you uh, cleanse us from the evil that's, that's, that's tied up in us? God, would you uh, help us to walk past the door of, t- of temptation? In fact, not even walk past it. Would you help us to go in the opposite direction? Would you deliver us from evil? God, we seek your forgiveness, and you say that to get it, all we got to do is ask. Would you restore us? And then we, we pray that you help us to take the practical steps that Um, that would keep us from sin, but also lead us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.